One of the things I love about being a preacher is that I get to see every week two very different kinds of people uh, on a Sunday morning. Because there are some of you that are my people uh, that come in and roughly sit in the same spot uh, every Sunday. And then others of you just embrace the chaos of moving all around week to week. I don't know what that's about. I imagine it has something to do with connecting with different people and getting to know other people. And I, I suppose that's admirable. Uh, but I, I had to laugh. In one of our previous ministries, we made the transition from uh, pews to chairs. And so obviously kind of the layouts changed a little bit. And the very first week that we had chairs, one of our older ladies came in and she looks up first. And she begins to count. And she's counting the lights because she knows that she sits under the fifth row of lights uh, in the first chair of that. that it's, some people are just creatures of habit. And since I am one of these people, uh, going back to school, going to grad school has been a challenge for me. Uh, because even the small in-person sessions that we have, they're usually about three-day sessions. And on the first day, everybody takes a seat. And from my understanding, there's no seating chart, but I mean, for all intents and purposes, those are assigned seats then. And yet you always have that person that on the second or third day comes in and sits in your spot. I've even had to move to the second row, the second row at times because of that. And I just sometimes want to say to these people, but I don't because I'm growing in my maturity, my godliness. I want to say to them, hey, you're in my seat. Uh, and as I reflect on these instances, I, I think about how often we do that to God. How often we want to walk up to him on his throne and say, excuse me, God, but I think you're in my seat. Uh, this week we are finishing up uh, the third in our series, Beyond the Veil, looking at these instances where in Scripture we see uh, this peek into the throne room of heaven, the throne of God, and we see him and all of his power and majesty and grandeur and glory. And as we wrap up this series and head into Christmas, it's been my goal to kind of get a picture of the bigness of God, to see and capture a vision of how big God is, and to look and to see him in his sovereign power over our world. It's in these moments that we have had to look beyond the veil and to see more clearly into this heavenly throne room that I think that we come to an understanding of how dumb and ignorant it is to often express in the way that we live our lives, God, I think you're in my seat. Because what we see from these passages that we've looked at and we'll look at this morning is that nobody can hold that throne as God does. We've seen the first week of this series in Isaiah chapter 6 that they're in this moment, Israel is in this moment, uh, coming out of great national security of a, a long reigning king into a period of uncertainty of what's next. And in the midst of this, God calls Isaiah to be this prophet and to go and to be his mouthpiece, even to a people who won't listen. Last week we saw in Daniel chapter 7, this uh, peace that comes from the throne. That in Daniel, as all of these nations were rising and falling around him, causing tumult and chaos and uncertainty, in the midst of that, Daniel sees all of these beasts come and go, and yet God remains on his throne. And we see this peace that comes from it as one, like a son of man, the title that Jesus uses for himself, approaches the throne and has all authority and power and dominion. And that in the midst of the chaos of our world, God holds everything together. This morning, we kind of continue in those same instances of now seeing God seated on his throne in Revelation 4 and 5. 
not looking to the call to go or the call to peace, not even looking at something that comes from the throne, something that we do before the throne, and that is worship. But as we come to Revelation, I want to kind of lay just a few ground rules for Revelation just in general this morning, because a lot of times we come to Revelation and we get really weird about it. Uh, There's all these pictures and images of strange things to come, and I think often we approach Revelation like it's this roadmap for the future. That we have to kind of read Revelation in one hand and have the newspaper in the other and try to conflate these events to see what is happening. And in the midst of this, we see this combination of past symbolism and present struggles and future prophecy and eternal glory and majesty. And we can get so wrapped up in the strange beasts and the symbols that we can forget that this is a regular book of the Bible just like any other. That it has a message about who God is and who we are to be in light of who he is. In the specific context of Revelation, we have the, Christian, the, the early Christians beginning to experience persecution. And this comes in a variety of ways, primarily conflict, coming into conflict with the powers that be, the kingdoms of this world, but also a persecution in the form of compromise. That sometimes, and to avoid conflict, it's just easier to look a little more like everybody else. And so John is writing, the Apostle John is writing to these seven churches, either either dealing with conflict or compromise or a mixture between the two. And he's writing to them as an encouragement, as a pastor, to encourage them and strengthen them. These seven churches that are going through these things, that John is writing to them to strengthen their witness and to strengthen their resolve. And one of the ways that he does this is by giving them a clear picture of the throne room of heaven. By this point, the Apostle John has been exiled for his faith to this island of Patmos, kind of a a prison island. And it's here that he receives this revelation of and from Jesus about not necessarily what will happen in the future, though there is some element of that, but how he can encourage the churches in their present struggles and their present realities, and how he can encourage us generations later as well. John catches this glimpse beyond the veil of the heavenly throne room. And we read this in Revelation chapter 4, starting in verse 1. He says, After this I looked, and there before me was a door, standing open in heaven. And the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what might take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby, A rainbow that shone like an emerald encircled the throne. Surrounding the throne were twenty-four other thrones, and seated on them were twenty-four elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder. In front of the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. Also in front of the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. In the center... Around the throne were four living creatures. They were covered with eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion. The second was like an ox. The third had a face like a man, and the fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under its wings. Day and night, they never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. I think John, more than any other biblical writer, gives us the clearest picture of the throne of God. 
And of course, in just seeing its beauty, he begins to describe what it looks like with these precious stones of jasper and ruby, this lake of crystal, this shining rainbow. In other words, this symbol of the promise that God gave to Noah as a mark of his faithfulness and the promise of a new creation. And I love the picture that John paints of what he sees and the beauty of this moment, the beauty of God that he conveys for us. But I also think it's important to note that amidst the beauty of God, John is also conveying the power of God. Throughout Revelation, one of the phrases that occurs multiple times in connection with worship is one that may surprise us. It's the phrase, fear God. I think particularly in worship, that sometimes somewhere amidst the harmonies and the melodies and our nodding off or scrolling on our phones during the sermon or the nonchalant nature with which we take the grape juice shot, we can forget fear in our worship. As John describes the scene, listen again, he says, From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder. In front of the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. It doesn't take much of our imagination of a Florida summer afternoon rainstorm to picture this thunder and lightning that booms out before the throne. And when we worship God, we come into his glorious and yet somehow terrifying presence. I love the way Dr. Randy Harris said it. He said, no one who ever asked God to be fully present in the Bible ever asked him to do that again. John himself experiences this in chapter 1, verse 17, when he first sees this vision of Jesus. And it says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But this fear is not an abject terror, but a reminder of the greatness of our God in the midst of the mundane. As John marvels at the beauty of God and the power of God, and we see these flashes of lightning bolts and, and rumblings and peals of thunder come from the throne, what we're seeing is a, a neon sign saying, listen up. Anytime we see thunder and lightning in the book of Revelation, it comes with this proclamation of a kingdom message, a message of divine emphasis. In other words, when you see thunder and lightning or hear thunder and lightning, you better listen up. And if you were with us a couple of weeks ago when we looked at Isaiah, you recognize some similarities between Isaiah's vision of the throne and John's. We see these same creatures going encircling the throne saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Isaiah concludes that with the whole earth is filled with his glory. But as John peeks beyond the veil, we see and hear the creatures singing a new song. They sing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, but they change the last part to who was and who is and is to come. Like I said, John is writing to these churches struggling with conflict and compromise. And here in the midst of that, he hears and communicates a chorus emphasizing the eternality of God. I think what we are to get in the midst of our worship from this vision of the throne is that even in the, in the darkest of days, God is always on his throne. His power always wins out. His plans always prevail. He has been and will be on the throne for all of our yesterdays and todays and tomorrows. But there is never a moment where God is caught off guard. There is never a moment where he says, I can't believe that happened. I can't believe they did that. I can't believe that escaped my, my, my vision, my, my power, my authority. There is never a moment in which God is unaware of what is happening. 
because he is the one who has always been and always will be. And is in the midst of that here with us in our circumstances. John is writing, standing in the very presence of God, hearing this cry of worship. Worship coming from these four-winged creatures that says, because of God's holiness, because of his majesty, because of his beauty, God alone is worthy of our worship and our adoration. Verse 9, he continues, it says, Whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. We see in this instance here, these elders, these winged creatures, the angels, all of creation fall before the throne. And we see that in this, we too are called to worship. We too are called to fall down before the throne and to lay our crowns at the feet of the king of the universe. To lay our plans, our autonomy, our independence, our seemingly the things that we grasp at authority, to lay those crowns before the feet of the king who sits on the throne. But I think there's a struggle that we have in this sometimes, not just with giving up of ourselves, but sometimes with just a picture of worship in general. I think about the call that God gives to Isaiah. And one that sounds so valiant, he says, you know, whom shall we send and who will go for us? And it's this brave and adventurous voice of God that calls us to do something. And Isaiah says, here am I, send me. And his lips are cleansed with this burning coal. And he's given this message to go out and proclaim. And there's a sense of, of doing something. And yet when we come to Revelation, we, we get this sense of worship is kind of has this different feel. You know, the call to go, the, the call to purpose and mission energizes us. And sometimes, if we're being honest, the call to worship just kind of bores us. I mean, one of these conjures images of excitement and a quest and doing something for God and being productive and getting out there and sharing his good news. And the other kind of conjures hard pews and dusty hymn books. And we might even try to make this about us and our preferences. You know, I just, I don't get a lot out of the worship. Whether it be that you know, the traditional stuff is too old or the contemporary stuff is too loud, too repetitive. Which kind of, by the way, is like going to someone else's birthday party and saying, you know, this really isn't doing it for me. Like, it's not about us. And yet when we catch this glimpse of this heavenly throne room, I think that we have to recognize that worship in these moments ceases to be something that is boring and monotonous and instead sheds light on the whole purpose of our existence. It's not about the style of music or whether we prefer traditional or contemporary or how well you sing or how bad you sing or how well your neighbor sings or how bad your neighbor sings. It's really not even about singing at all. You see, worship is about learning who God is and who we are and the incredible difference between the two. Worship is about putting God in the proper place in our lives. To no longer say to him, you're in my seat. No, as we come to worship and we experience worship, not just in our songs, but in all the ways that we worship, not even just in this building, we are acknowledging the God who sits on the throne, 
is God and we are not and we fall on our faces in response. And it's when we acknowledge God in his proper position, his throne, that we truly understand why we worship because our God is supreme. John says in verse 11, this title of Lord and God. And for us, this is just a nice title defining who God is. But for John in his time, in his audience, this is political smack talk. This is a moment in history where emperor worship in Rome was at its peak. And Domitian, the emperor at the time of his writing, had labeled himself, guess what? Lord and God. And so John, in the midst of a time where persecution is rampant, is saying, no, we worship the one true God. Not the emperor, because he is the one who sits on the real throne. You see, worship enables us and gives us this perspective to see who truly runs the world and who alone gives us hope. And when we stop looking to satisfy ourselves and instead to seek to praise God, we encounter what it means to truly worship. When we rally around and focus on the throne in our worship, we experience how God feels about our worship. And I think to help us in this, John gives us, in the midst of this vision, this peak beyond the veil, two elements of who God is that should cause us to worship. First, he tells us and shows us that God holds everything together and that he is making all things new. Verse 11, he says, You created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. That God is creator of the world and sustainer of everything that happens in this world. And John shows us this not just in word, but he provides this powerful symbol, this portrayal, with these four creatures encircling the throne. More than just angelic beings, each of these creatures represents a part of God's created order. You have man, the face of a man, the head of all creation, the one given authority over the other beings that God created, known for its intelligence. You have the lion, the chief of the wild animals noted for its ferocity. The ox, the chief of domesticated animals noted for its strength. And the eagle, the chief of birds noted for its freedom. Each of these being a representative of the head of the species, representing the totality of all creation that God has made. Worshipping him in unison. But the great truth about Revelation, the great promise, isn't, is that God isn't done creating yet. That he has a plan to redeem his old creation, turning it into a new one. That he will take away all that sin has broken and marred and create it perfect once more. Liberating us and creation from the bondage of sin and decay and death. And so to do this, To make creation new, in Revelation, we see this scroll presented. This scroll that contains the covenantal promise of God's plan for redemption. To purge the old and to purify and to reveal the plan for the new. But as we come to this monumental moment in this book, in this moment of worship, there's a problem. Chapter 5, verse 2, John says, And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seal and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. You see, in terms of creation, going back to when God created our world, in the beginning, God promised Adam and Eve, by proxy, dominion over creation. 
that we would be stewards over all he'd created and how badly we messed that up. And almost immediately, we see this forfeiture of this dominion because of sin. And yet, in the midst of our failure, God had a plan. This plan to remove the curse of sin and death that entered the world, this plan to make all things new. But as humans had failed in the promise of upholding a new creation, it had to be a human that should atone for that. And this is where the problem lies. A human must receive the scroll, but no human is worthy to open the scroll. And so John begins to cry, begins to weep, because it seems like the promise stops here. And yet one says, don't cry, don't weep. There is one who is worthy, the great Lion of Judah, the Root of King David. He is worthy. And it's as if all of heaven turns to look for this Lion, the one who is worthy. And I can just kind of picture John standing on tiptoe, craning for a first look at this Lion that is alone worthy, the one that can do what no other could. And yet he sees in this moment something completely different. Verse 6, he says, Then I saw a lamb, looking as if it had been slain standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. The Lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne, and when he had taken it, the four living creatures and twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb. Each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands and ten thousand times ten thousand. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders in a loud voice. They were saying, Worthy is the Lamb who is slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. The four living creatures said amen and the elders fell down and worshipped. I love this moment where John expects to see a lion and instead sees the manifestation of a lamb. He expects a lion, the most powerful of all creation, and he finds this lamb, one that is powerless, and not just powerless, but already slain. And this lamb, of course, we know is Jesus, the one who had the power to fiercely reign as a lion and remains as the lion of Judah and yet allowed himself to be sacrificed as a lamb. And it's here that we find and behold the primary reason for our worship. Because Jesus is the Messiah, the one who is worthy, the Lamb of God, and became our Passover Lamb, taking away the sins of the world, our sins, through his death and resurrection, all of creation falls before him and worships him. That he is worthy of worship because he didn't come to rule with an iron scepter, through domination or conquering of nations, but he came to rule in self-sacrifice and now has received all power. John tells us that this lamb has seven horns and seven eyes. And before you think that's one weird looking lamb, seven is a symbol of completeness. Horns, a symbol of strength. Eyes, a symbol of wisdom. Here we see this seemingly helpless, innocent lamb. And when in fact he has 
God's complete strength, God's complete wisdom, that he is God and is therefore worthy of worship. And the new creation that began with his resurrection, he will complete by taking the scroll and renewing all of creation. The throne calls us to worship simply because the Lamb is worthy of our worship. As we wrap up today, I wanted to share with you a story about a Christian songwriter named Matt Redman. You might recognize his name if you are familiar with Christian music. If you're not familiar with his name, I can almost guarantee, uh, especially in this service, that you have sung a song that he wrote before. But back in the late 90s, uh, Redmond's church in England, where he was the worship minister, was having kind of a bit of a dry spell when it came to their worship. It seemed by all metrics the, the congregation had become apathetic, the band had become apathetic. I mean, the music was great. He was a, he's a world-class singer and songwriter. But the worship wasn't that great. And so the lead minister did a, a pretty daring thing. He had a sermon one week when he said, when you come through the doors on a Sunday, what are you bringing as your offering to God? In other words, are you coming just to consume or are you coming to contribute to worship? And in response to that, for an entire year, the church got rid of their sound system, and they got rid of their band, and they got rid of all the bells and whistles. And what was once a period of apathetic singing turned into an hour of prayer and a cappella singing, and they learned what it truly meant to focus on the throne as they encountered God in worship. After the end of that year, The sound system was restored, the band came back on stage, and the first song they sang was a new one that Matt Redman had written, entitled The Heart of Worship. And it's in this song that he penned the lyrics, when the music fades and all is stripped away, and I simply come, longing just to bring something that's of worth that will bless your heart. He says, I'm coming back to the heart of worship, and it's all about you. Jesus. Now, unless something changes because of the impact of the Spirit after this sermon, I don't think we're getting rid of the guitars or the drums or the (laughs) piano or any of that. But I do want to encourage you and urge you to return to the heart of worship. I want to urge you to realize that worship isn't about us, but about the Lamb of God who is slain to take away the sins of the world. It's all about Jesus. It's also in this time that as we approach the throne in worship, I want to extend the invitation to begin a relationship with this Lamb, to understand why He alone is truly worthy of our praise. The throne is calling you to true and genuine worship. How will we answer that call? Let's pray. Father God, we come before you this morning. And I'm the first to admit that in the everyday busyness and mundaneness of life, we can become distracted and all these other things vying for our attention that we forget to worship. Or maybe we think of worship as only what happens in the first three songs and the last couple of closing songs on a Sunday morning. But God, I pray that you would help us to live lives of worship. Lives where we continually recognize and put into practice ways 
that will show us that you are on the throne and that we are not. In the moments that we want to assert our own way to lead our own path, we would instead take off our crowns and lay them at your feet and fall on our faces. We thank you for Jesus, who could have come as a conquering lion, demanding people to to bend to his will, and yet, as a lion, became like a lamb to sacrifice himself so that we might have life. God, I pray that in the moments this week as we go out that we would be reminded of who you are and what you have done. Be reminded to worship you with our lives as a living sacrifice. And pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.